Okay. Well, it's just letting me record. So that's what I'll do. I think it's go it's already streaming to my YouTube. It's just not streaming to Twitter. So okay. So there's like three main topics that I want to talk about. I know originally you had um tweeted out like want to talk about low intensity conflict. Okay, wait. I'm sorry. I'm dumb. And I just imagine that everybody already knows who you are. So I would like for you to introduce yourself a little bit. I know you're a Bama boy. And so I guess my heartfelt sympathies that you guys lost to Georgia. So I'm so sorry about that. I'll say that at the beginning. Um, I, I moved here from Birmingham. Uh, well, I, I lived here originally. I went to Birmingham and I just came back not too long ago. So Bama's got a little special place in my heart. So yeah, that's um, share with everyone. I know you were in Intel. I know a lot about you because I've researched you, but I always think it's better when it comes from you to give kind of a little bit of background on who you are and what you're bringing to the table before we get into the subjects. Sure. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. I, I really do enjoy talking about this stuff, and especially because it's going to be more pertinent to the average American as we make our way through this decade. So, yeah, I'm Mike, uh, former Intel guy. I spent three years in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I came back and started a company called Ford Observer. And now we track uh, overseas conflicts. So Russia, Ukraine, we have an analyst that looks at uh, US and China. And uh, I really focus on domestic effects. So low intensity conflict, what people call Civil War II, uh, insurgency, other types of, of small wars. And that is really my narrow focus because I love that stuff. Yeah. You have a book coming out in February, right? Well, yeah, maybe uh, if I can <laughs> if I can get it written. There's just there's just always something else to put in, so I, I think I just got to chop it off and say, all right, at some point it's just got to go. Well, so I, mean, I don't you know when it's going to be out. So, well, there'll there'll be a, a return, the electric boogaloo <laughs> of this book for sure. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. Of the things that I kind of want to, I do want to talk about Russia and Ukraine just because we've got so much going on and you're so up to date with that on Forward Observer. Um, I want to talk about China, Taiwan, USA kind of situation. And really, I, it, you know, it feels very Axis and allies right now um, when you're looking at the board because the Houthis in Iran are starting to, you know, heat things up as well. In addition to the things that are going on in China and Taiwan, North Korea, and Russia. So it's like this four wheel trifecta of people. And we're trying to like maneuver against that. So that's just like from a, a layman observation. And then the last thing that I really, really want to talk, talk about, and probably what we'll spend the most time on is the cultural revolution that's taking place in the United States right now. So that's really more your wheelhouse and what you focus on personally. But given what Forward Observer does and the current climate, I think it would be stupid for me to have you on and not at least talk about the stuff that's going on between Russia and Ukraine, especially. Um, here's my thing. So I, I would say the majority of my listeners fall under the, I, I guess, libertarian anarchist type realm of things. They're not so much Democrat, Republican. It's much more a group of individuals that you know, if anything else, they identify with the the desire to not go back to war for any reason. And mm -hmm. so I, I try really hard when I ask questions. I'm not asking them to be combative. I'm not asking them to be a bitch. I'm asking them because I need to understand. When we're looking at Russia and Ukraine, and I ask this question a lot, what is the American interest in Ukraine? What is so important to us that we feel the need to get involved there, whether it be financially or with actual troops on the ground. Because I, th I think today, didn't Lloyd Austin say like 8,500 troops have been reserved to go to um, allied countries? Is that correct? Yeah, they've been put on standby. That's what I thought. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about why I, as an American, have a vested interest in us getting involved with the Ukraine-Russia conflict. You as an average American have probably nothing to gain from U.S. involvement in Ukraine. The elites do. And the whole globalist NATO cabal absolutely do. Number one, there's so much 
foreign cash that gets funneled through Ukraine that makes its way into the pockets of Western elites. They, they don't want to give that up, I think, number one. And look at the dealings with Bur- Burisma and Hunter Biden and all that stuff and realize that's probably the tip of the iceberg. That's probably like the 1% that you see versus the 99% that you don't see. I right. mean, yeah, we haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg on that, I don't think. Yeah. And and then also, Russia is a country that is not playing by the Western rules. And so the West says, well, they deserve to be punished. And when Russia tries to expand its sphere of influence, it is ex- trying to expand into an area where NATO has expanded its sphere of influence post-Cold War. Because we have, in Europe, countries joining NATO. After the Warsaw Pact was dissolved and the Soviet Union collapsed, and when we have Russia, there was this founding agreement back in the 90s. And basically, the NATO country said, well, the Soviet Union no longer exists, so uh, you know we don't need to continue to expand and, and try to counter the Soviet Union. Well, And what do they do? They've been adding countries to NATO, and now they're talking about adding Georgia and Ukraine to NATO. And so right. Russia says, well, these NATO's on our doorstep. They're eating into our our sphere of influence. Before before long, they're going to topple the Russia. You know, they're going to topple the, the Putin and the top of Russia. And Russia is just going to become another eurozone global homo country. And right. Putin does not want that. And so, right, yeah. So at any rate, that that's that's how I see it. At least this is why Putin is trying to push back on this whole NATO expansion thing. And so I saw something today, and it's always hard for me sometimes, especially when it's not from a credible source, but there is it true that Russia is starting to have conversations with Cuba? Well, I don't think they've, have you I don't seen think they've stopped having conversations with Cuba. I know Venezuela came out in the past couple of days and said they'll provide technical military expertise to Russia or something like that. But look, it's not just – it's Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua. And those are the three places where Russia either has a foothold or, or has some level of friendly relations. And so, uh, so yeah, I mean, we can go down the rabbit hole on Cuba because they are absolutely complicit. They're driving a lot of, of unrest in, in Latin America, uh, but they're, they're obviously not a good guy. But yeah, Russia, they absolutely have a reach into the Western Hemisphere through those countries and and some more footholds. So I I guess maybe it feels like we're playing a big game of chicken right now where it's a matter of the United States and Russia going back and forth and seeing like who's going to call whose bluff at at which point. And it feels like, I don't know, I guess watching our withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and just again, from an average American's perspective, I think it made us look so incredibly weak. We're still right now, that country is starving. We're still trying to get people out of the country that we left behind there. Um, And it's, it's made us look completely incompetent on the world stage. And I feel like our enemies took note and are are making moves right now. Am I just crazy for thinking that or is that actually what's happening right now? You probably saw it. The State Department came out a couple of days ago and said, here are the top five Russian disinformation uh, campaigns. And I think it was like number, I don't know, number four maybe was that the West is in decline. They said, that's not true. Right. That's just a Russian disinfo. Well, that's not Russian disinfo. And Russia and China absolutely do see what's happening. Empires are cyclical. They they have a boom-bust cycle, just like our, our monetary system does. Uh, and, sure. and we are in the bust cycle right now. We are in the, the decline. We're at the end, the beginning of the end, probably of the, the end of the American empire. They recognize that. They are posturing to fill that, fill those vacuums where uh, where the United States will no longer have power or authority or influence in the world. And you look at the number of the number of civil wars that started after the Soviet collapse. It's, I mean, it's a massive spike. And that was the case because the Soviet Union collapsed. They, they lost their power and, and influence and authority in these countries. And, and then East and West collided and, and they fought in these countries. So 
Um, and that's in Latin America, in Africa, in uh, Asia, lots of places. And so Russia and China are just posturing to come in and do the same thing to us once the American empire, once we really start to fade in terms of, of military power. It's, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a game of chicken. It's more of like a, a game of like, we're going to toe the line and keep pushing the line and dare you to try to stop us. So yeah, maybe you can call it chicken. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's move to China, Taiwan here real fast. I know what our vested interest is in Taiwan. It's like our microchip chip processing that is the majority of of how we function as a society anymore. We've become so dependent on computers as a society, and, and the majority of that is done out of Taiwan. I get that. I understand why that would be important to us. Do you think that, first of all, do you think that China is going to try to time any sort of conflict or any sort of... Um, interference or action in Taiwan the same time that Russia moves on Ukraine to capitalize on stretching the American thin? That is a potential course of action. And I'll tell you, Max really is our, our Indo-PACOM analyst. And he's probably better to answer that question than I am. However, I'm, I'll give you my perspective. And uh, I don't think China's ready yet, but you've probably seen we have our carrier strike groups over in uh, in the Pacific Ocean right now, as just as a warning to China, hey, you know, we'll be here if you try to do anything. I don't think China is ready yet. That's my personal opinion take. Uh, yeah. However, they are they are getting they are becoming more ready. Right. Um, a lot of people, when we talk about China, a lot of people still operate under the premise and, and they say things like, China's just a paper tiger. They don't really actually have a military force. It's not it's not really that big of a deal. And um, I feel like we're constantly on the position of trying to downgrade or diminish the power of our enemies rather than acknowledging the potential that they're they're stronger than what we think they are. Do you agree with that, or do you think that they really are a paper tiger? Well, as lots of people say, the Chinese military is untested, and that is true. There are some areas where they exceed the capabilities of the United States, or they at least appear, if not exceed, exceed what we have. And then there are areas where they uh, undoubtedly are are far inferior to what the U.S. currently has. The The problem for the United States fighting all the way around the world is that we have supply chains to keep up, and we're very vulnerable here in the United States. So China has a lot of avenues for, for asymmetric warfare against the United States, which they will pursue. The Army, back in December 2020, warned that, that they didn't name China specifically, but they basically said, hey, look, uh, you better prepare for hybrid warfare here domestically in the continental United States. The 2018 national defense strategy said the homeland is no longer a sanctuary. China could use transnational, uh, transnational criminal, criminal organizations, economic, financial warfare, cyber warfare. They have a lot of, a lot of things they can do to hurt the United States to attack us here at home, which will detract from, from projecting force abroad. So it's not a case of, is China a paper tiger? It is, is China willing to do to the United States what it has to in order for China to achieve their regional objectives? And we can go back to this. In 1999, there are these two Chinese PLA colonels. They wrote this, I call it a manual. It's called Unrestricted Warfare. And their whole message was that the United States is going the way of the Soviet Union. They're spending tons of money on high-end capabilities. Some of these capabilities are so high-end, the United States will even never even use them in a war. And the United States is trying to outspend its, its, uh, its adversaries, which didn't work for the Soviet Union. They said, in order to defeat the United States, you have to force the United States to pursue survival uh, vice blocking China's attempts to, to achieve their regional objectives. That's exactly what China's doing. I think China wants to put the United States into a survival situation so that we are, we've, we've, uh, we're focused on stopping, stopping the hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging at home 
rather than fighting China abroad. Can they do that now? Maybe. Three years from now, they're almost certainly going to be in a position to do that. Yeah. I, th I think one of my fears as a citizen is how lazy and complacent we've become as a society. And I watch... Just uh, we'll use Twitter just as an example, right? So I'll tweet out some fucking retarded picture, meme, whatever, and say, you know, or, or so the other day I, I sent out a tweet and I was like, if you could choose, a, you know, any music to be your page on Twitter, like it was on, on MySpace, what song would you get? Like 300 people responded and 100 people retweet. Like it was like, it went viral. Like all these people really wanted me to know what song they wanted on. And and I care, you know, like it's cool that people shared that. But at the same time, I also tweeted out, hey, by the way, the IRS is going to make you give up all your biometric data to a third party entity to access your tax records. Did you guys know this? And I got like seven people liked it. Nobody retweeted it. Nobody commented. And I'm like, what is the deal? <laughs> like, do you people understand what's actually important anymore? Or have we just, I just feel like we've become so lazy. And I, I mean, like EMP attacks are what I genuinely am in, in fear of. I'm terrified that we're going to have a nuke detonated over top of us and we're going to lose everything. And I know that's probably an unrealistic fear to have, but that's what, it's not like tanks coming in the United States and, and attacking us. It's, it's, weakening us in a way that we can't recover from quickly and as an entire nation. So I, I, which I guess we'll use this to segue into the cultural war that's taking place here in the United States right now. And I mean, China's been infiltrating our schools, our research departments, our, like the idea of communism is, appealing to people. I, I saw a thread the other day. It was like, why shouldn't everybody get what, what's wrong with equity? Why can't everybody have all of the same stuff? And it's like this Marxist concept is just permeating society at this point. And it's incredibly scary. Um, but outside of that, you also have the division between the right and the left, right? I, I don't really identify with any political party, but this this last election, I don't want to get into like like conspiracy theories like the Dominion machines or anything like that. That's not really where I want to go with this. But there are at least four states that circumvented election laws and allowed laws to be passed without going through their legislature. To me... Any vote cast in one of those ways was an illegitimate vote. And so we're in a position, you made a comment on one of your videos. I, I went and watched a whole bunch of your stuff before I talked to you. Thank you. And I really, really appreciated um, your, your three-pronged approach as to like the, it's like legitimacy, capacity, and authority. So does the do the people believe that you are actually the real government? Do you have the resources, the manpower to provide services that the government is supposed to give? And authority, does the government have the legal authority to operate? And I feel like we have reached a point for the first time in history, of my history, like in, in my lifetime, where the people are starting to not see our government in that position where we don't recognize, regardless of what party is in place, Democrat or Republican, we don't trust the process enough to think that that person is legitimate. Going all the way back to Obama, you know, becoming president, and then Trump, and then now Biden. Like, we're in a position where we don't give legitimacy to the person who's who's in office or the, the people in Congress. So... I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about those three things and, and what that means from a revolutionary perspective. And then I want to shift into how to defeat that. And one of the things that you brought up um, is the organization phase, like organizing pri like preemptively against your opponent. 
And that's something that for me, it's not about right versus left. It's about people versus government. It's, it's about we, the people holding the power in the country. We're not organizing that way. We're fighting one another when it should be a united front against that. So talk to me a little bit first about the war of the left, and then we'll move into solutions if you don't care. Sure, yeah. I would start off by saying that this is pretty classic late-stage empire behavior. I hate the term late stage capitalism, but they actually do have a lot of good arguments. The people who espouse that, I would just say it's not late stage capitalism. It's late stage, late stage empire. If you go back and read the work of Sir John Glubb, he talks about the phases of empire, how these is it's cyclical and empires last about 10 generations or roughly 250 years. And which we're we're coming up on. If you want to start the U S empire in, you know, say 1776, or goes far out as 1820s for the Monroe Monroe Doctrine. So we are we are on the on the back slope here. So Sir John Glubb calls it the age of intellect, and that is when the people are so far removed from the the ideology or the leader that sparked the creation of of the new people and a new empire. They get ten generations down. They're so far removed. They have very little. To connecting them with that original fervor. And he talks about how immigration further dilutes the populace, the, the links of the people to their, their original heritage. And we are, we're at that point now where competing ideologies are being propagated, not just in the United States, but all, all across the West. And this whole concept of the cultural revolution or the leftist cultural revolution is not new. They actually, this is actually the third iteration, the third time they've tried to attempt this. The first time was back in, uh, back in the, the teens and the twenties and into the thirties where you had, you had the Palmer raids and you had the attorney general and the department of justice go and round up thousands. It was like three or 5,000 immigrants in the United States, anarchists and socialists who were radicals. And you had terror, you had bomb plots and terror campaigns, and uh, the Communist Party USA was founded in 1919. And so the FBI had this uh, counter radical division, and they uh, a lot they spent a lot of time and effort into dismantling these groups, and they did it. And then you get into the 60s and 70s, where you have the second iteration of the Cultural Revolution, and you get the Weather Underground and the Weathermen and Students for a Democratic Society. And the Symbionese Liberation Front and all these other domestic terror groups and radical groups. And and you had the FBI go in and bust them up as well. I mean, COINTELPRO. Oh, shoot. You're coming in broken up again. Sorry. What was that? Well, maybe I have you back. Well, I guess that's it. So I, I, if this is still recording, I don't know. Uh, that's the second iteration, the 60s and 70s. And this is the third iteration in case this is live streaming to anywhere else. So it's nothing new. But my point is, as the original bonds of the people get weaker and weaker to the original idea that founded the empire, as those bonds get weaker, it invites competition, and which is where we are now, which is why – oh, maybe we're back. <laughs> Keep going. Okay, yeah. So so that was the second iteration, 60s and 70s. And these people, they, they're real revolutionaries. They, they really thought that they were on the cusp of some grand revolution. And, and now this is the third iteration. And so the point is, as the people – the people's original link to the original idea of the founding – gets washed out as it gets diluted the the fervor of that idea also gets diluted which invites competition which is where we are now and so in terms of government legitimacy you know legitimacy is the 
the acceptance of the people to be ruled or to be governed by a government. And so if I were to go around in my neighborhood, go kid up and go around to all my neighbors and I say, I'm your president now, I wouldn't have legitimacy. These people would think right. I'm crazy. They would call the cops. And so, um, but if I were to go around my neighborhood and I say, look, here's all the problems with the existing government, X, Y, Z. Uh, here are all the reasons why we should throw off the chains and just institute our own government. And if my entire neighborhood said, man, Mike, that's a really great idea. Uh, we want to make you the next president. Uh, I would have legitimacy in my neighborhood. And uh, so, so legitimacy can be gained and lost. It is being lost right now by the federal government. They're auto delegitimizing themselves. And uh, I, my concern is that uh, this is this their legitimacy is being eroded slowly. And then at what point is it going to accelerate to where we have some really bad problems in this country? Like I mean, we, we've are, you know, we have these secessionist movements and kind of, you know, whatever independence movements, but I'm talking straight balkanization at what is, is there going to be a period of accelerating delegitimacy by the federal government, probably triggered by a single event or maybe by a, a series of events that actually causes states to say, and by the way, it's probably going to be the fate of the dollar, I think, likely determines this scenario. But if the dollar goes swiftly, then I, I think we're going to have states that say, you know, the economy and the dollar was really the last thing holding this place together. Uh, it wasn't the government. It wasn't the culture. It wasn't politics. It was no longer ideology. The, the I don't know what you call it, centrifugal force that was holding this place right. together is gone. And now... We need to serve the interests of the residents of our state and uh, of our states. And we're going to go and uh, it's not, it's not unfounded for some people. It may be difficult to, to uh, kind of wrap their minds around that. Uh, I, I don't think it's impossible uh, that uh, I, my concern is that the United States will balkanize because that's typically what, what empires do. Empires okay. collapse, they break apart or empires get subsumed by another empire that, that's stronger than the previous empire. I don't know who that's so going to be. The balkanization process, what does that look like to you? Because I mean, like, if you look at the map right now and, and what it looks like, it's like the one part is all around the trim and the edge or the major cities and then in, in the center. So like, what would that, what would that look like and what would that do to the Okay. When we're dealing with a power vacuum, we have so we have du jour legitimacy, which is legal authority, right? We vote for a president or ostensibly vote for a president, and that guy has some level of legitimacy because he's been elected to hold that office. And then we also have de facto legitimacy. And my concern is that when we have a power vacuum due to a loss of legitimacy, and it's not just a loss of legitimacy, it's a loss of capacity. When the federal government is no longer able to provide basic services, when they are no longer able to, uh, to fulfill their obligations via the social contract, they also lose legitimacy. So if they lose capacity, they will lose legitimacy. And then we have authority, which is the ability for the government to enforce its laws legally within its boundaries, which is also being eroded. So we're in a situation now where legitimacy, capacity, and authority are at some level being eroded. I think that will very likely accelerate in the future. And now all of a sudden, this opens us up to de facto legitimacy. And it could be maybe a retired flag officer from the military. It could be a group of people in a county that say, hey, we're going to start our own. Uh, I, I, there's just there's so many so many ways this could potentially happen. And I'm not trying to write a fiction novel here or like, you know, live in fantasy land. Uh, but people no, just have to understand. People have to understand. Yeah. Yeah. People just have to understand. This has happened many times before and throughout world history. This is effectively what happened during the American Revolution where you just have a group of people that say, 
um, we're going to go make our own, we're going to make our own country and we're going to, and we're willing to fight for it. And that maybe that happens 20 or 50 years from now. Maybe that happens. I don't know within five years. I, I don't know. What I do is I read a lot of history and I look for patterns and I, I just, I look for parallels and, you know, I, I'm not saying this exactly will happen. I am merely trying to lay out a range of, of potential futures, a, a list of potential courses of action that could happen. And then when we start to read the news and consume the news, I'm looking for indicators that support one of these potential courses of action. And right now, all the all these potential courses of action I've listed out are have have some basis in in news events, so okay. they can't be discounted. Um, when you're talking about patterns, one of the things that you mentioned on one of the videos was the um, Communist Party in Algeria and the um, kind of similarities as to the cultural war that's going on right now versus what happened there. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So the Algerian insurgency was fought against the French in like 50, was it 51 or 54, I don't know, into the 60s and uh, mid-60s. And uh, one, one of the things that the Algerian Communist Party did was they built social groups. And they went around and they said, look, uh, these social groups are communist in nature, and they replace the role of the family in Algerian society. That's what the Communist Party of Algeria was doing. And uh, where, you know, they, they said, look, the, the party is your family now. And there was a, general, a French general by the name of, I believe it was Marchand, who, or Marchand, or however you ever say it. And, uh, and he was writing his, uh, he was writing kind of his, in his diary, writing uh, an account of what, of what the Communist Party was doing. And I, I read that passage and I was just like, wow, uh, that's exactly what's happening in the United States today, which is people being told that the nuclear family needs to go away and it needs to be replaced by the village. And your children don't belong to the parents. They belong to the society. And that, uh, you know, the, everything is the party first. And we view all aspects of society through the party lens. This is a playbook. This yeah. is exactly what it's what Mao did. It's what they did in Algeria. They've done this in numerous other uh, communist-led insurgencies and conflicts throughout the world. Um, which, and just kind of on that point, this is the whole point for the the French in their counterinsurgency efforts. They said, "Look, the communists are out there organizing the people against us. We have to get in and counter-organize against them." And that's exactly what the French did. They started soccer clubs. They started sewing circles. They started women's groups. They started all these. Uh, extracurricular and social groups and they use that to indoctrinate people into French Algerian society and so this is the whole concept of counter organizing this is one thing the right is not doing very well right now the left is very good at organizing they have a it's a profession it's called community organizer and people get paid to do that on the left and we on the right uh, I think we're, we're slowly catching up but we have just been so focused on hard power that we have really neglected the employment of soft power and the development of soft power to the point where we have allowed the left to come in and take over historically conservative institutions and reduce them to a pile of rubble or just take them over completely. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about the Boy Scouts. I'm talking about now NASCAR is doing all this uh, social justice stuff, and we have these mega corporations pushing social justice. And so this is one area where we are far behind the curve. And if we do not start counter organizing, I know there, I know people say, oh, the right has all the all the firearms and we and all. OK, I got that. Um, if you read a lot of history, you will notice that just because you outnumber or excuse me, not out, not outnumber, but just because you have more firepower than the other side doesn't mean you automatically win the war. I'm talking about India. I'm talking about Afghanistan. I'm talking about lots of other places where soft power has won the conflict. I'm talking about Algeria the right. Alger and Vietnam. Algeria was not lost in Algeria. Algeria was an overwhelming tactical success for the French. Algeria was lost in France because there was so much domestic and international political pressure that Charles de Gaulle basically said, well, we're just going to grant Algeria its independence as a, a humble gesture 
from the from the French, uh, basically force forcing them to lose. And uh, man, soft power wins wars. It wins these. I, let me rephrase this: soft power wins low intensity conflicts, not hard power. Right. Talk about what you mean by low intensity conflicts. I think when people think of that, they're still thinking in terms of like warfare, like not a lot of guns at this fight, you know, like kind of talk about what that term means real fast. Because, and then I want to go back to this counter organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Low intensity conflicts is a defense doctrine term. It is war or conflict below, below the threshold of conventional war. So we're not talking about tanks and bombers, but it exists above routine peaceful competition. And so it's kind of the, not really, it's, it's not really a gray area, but is it's the area between conventional war and peace. And so we're talking about insurgencies, popular revolutions, terror campaigns. Uh, those are all low intensity conflicts. Okay, it's the area between, say it one more time. <laughs> yeah, it's the area between conventional war and peace. So we're talking about insurgency, popular revolutions, terror campaigns, violent social movements, like we saw in 2020, Floyd's Rebellion was a low-intensity conflict. And it is how people have won wars against much or far superior conventional forces. Uh, and so, we're repeating it here in the United States. Let's talk a little bit about this counter-organization. So... You mentioned like sewing groups or something like that is what they, they would do with different types of stuff. But I, I want to touch on this idea of the nuclear family, not like the erosion of that or the desire for now. I've, I've watched a woman, it was an MSNBC clip last week. I think the video is old, but I just saw it last week. And this idea that we need to lose the private identity of children where they belong to the parent and look at it as a child belonging to the community and said with fucking straight face as if anyone should have any right to say anything about my child. It was the most asinine thing I've ever seen in my life, but many people received that. And I think if, if I'm to kind of give my opinion on that, I think we as a society, not we as in like you and me, but just as a whole, many people have gotten to the point where they really like to shirk responsibility and for anything, whether it be, um, like they just want somebody to tell them what to do versus them making the decision themselves because they don't want to own up to it if it, it's something they do, if they make the wrong choice. So parenting in childhood is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. Like, you don't know if you fucked up for 18 years. Like, you have to wait so long to find out if you did a good job or not. And the idea of putting the onerous onto, you know, the collective and, and, and making it everyone's fault and responsibility. And I don't know how we change that. I don't know how we circumvent that. How we get to the point where we get people to want to take their their responsibility back. Like how do we how do we start counter organizing against it? Because I think you're right. The right is awful, absolutely terrible about this. So I talk a lot to. I watch and I read Lafayette Lee on Twitter. He does a really good job of talking about how to localize and, you know, work in your community. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what we can do to start changing that narrative, get more people involved in, I guess, more conservative. I want to be careful not to be, like, Republican or anything like that, but just basic core values as an American, you know, work hard, Raise your kids, love your family, and enjoy the, the fruits of your labor. 
Yeah, the Youngkin campaign in Virginia, speaking of Lafayette Lee, was a great, really great example of, of counter-organizing because they, I think they really latched on to that anti-CRT, show up to school boards and be irate until things change. And so, you know, Adams said, Adams was very clear. He said, look, it's not the, not the majority. I forget the exact quote, but basically talks about the uh, a tireless, irate minority of people who get agitated and they go out and they demand change. And uh, so, look, I, I look at everything. First of all, I'm not a policy guy. My job is not really to necessarily describe, you know, what, what policies we should in place or what, uh, I, what I really do best at is identifying what the other side is doing and, okay. and, you know, maybe have a conversation, provide some advice on what we do in response. But in terms of counter-organizing, um, one of the, I don't, I, I don't know that there's a, there's, listen, there's not a, a quick and easy solution. And unfortunately, many, I think many people on the right were just looking for that quick, easy solution. There's not one. Uh, the reality is this is a decade, a promise decades in the making, and that you just don't solve that, those kinds of problems overnight. So what, uh, what, what I would say is um, at a certain point, it's just going to take all of us withdrawing our consent and withdrawing uh, our taking our kids out of public schools and out of these indoctrination camps and Sorry, you can't have that tablet. I know you're, all your friends have one, and you can't be on TikTok, and you can be pissed off all you want, and maybe one day you'll realize that uh, you know I am doing this because I, I love you, and I don't want you to dye your hair purple and become a pan-android sexual or whatever they are after being on TikTok for so long. And we, we just got to cut it off. And uh, th- I think that's one part. The second part is... We have to dare these people to take action. Like, say, okay, that's fine. You want to take my kids away? Um, I mean, at some point, they're going to have to try to enforce that. And maybe once they find that they can't enforce these laws that they want to make, or they can't enforce these cultural norms that they're they're trying to push on us, once they realize they can't do that, I I don't know. Again, I I don't have all the answers. I'm just telling you how bad things are and and sure. what these people are doing. And I'm really not a I don't know. I really, that's just not where I spend most of my time thinking, unfortunately. No, and I, I, I didn't mean to put COVID, watching the number of people, especially people on the right, willingly complying, not, not standing against it, not refusing, just saying, oh, well, it's just one more jab in my arm. It's just one more jab. It's just one more mask on my face. It's, you know, it was, again, we get back to the comfort in society. And, you know, as long as I don't buck the system, everything will be okay. And it's been really hard to watch. And I'm afraid that, you know, you said this is not something that happened overnight. This has been like 10 years in the making. So the solution is not going to be an overnight solution either. And my fear is that we've gotten to the point where we've allowed it to go so far for so long that I don't know that we can come back from it. So I guess I was looking for a little bit of a white pill for you to be like, oh, you know, here's the- <laughs> no, I don't, I don't serve those. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can tell. Um, no, I just, I think that it's, so talk to me a little bit, you've got the area of preparedness work in Texas that you started. Talk to me a little bit about what you guys are doing there and how that relates to this and how you're using that moving forward. Sure. Yeah. So I run the, it's called the Brazos Valley Preparedness Network, and we are just trying to link up with like-minded people. We have a meeting once a month. We provide some free training. Last month, we had a really good presentation on identifying and basic uh, basic treatment of cold weather injuries. We've had stuff on uh, active shooter considerations. I, I just on uh, we had a really good course on like uh, expanded pantry, basically how you can store food for long for long amounts of time on, on communications and just. Every storm preparedness and generators and solar panels and all that kind of stuff. So we're trying to offer 
people something of value. And in so doing, we would like them to be active in our preparedness network. And me as an Intel guy, I say, well, the more people I have, the more eyeballs and the more ear, ear holes that I have, and the more people who, provide, who can provide information on what's going on locally. And we've started some kind of strategic projects like linking up with, uh, I mean, contrary to popular belief, not everyone in Texas is a rancher. And so we have a lot of ur you know, urban and city dwelling people. And so you know, we've been trying to link up with, for those people who don't have access to land, linking up with ranchers who provide beef directly to us instead of buying it from the grocery store trying to source as many products as we use, as many, uh, as much food and everything that people use on a day-to-day -day basis, trying to find local sources for that. Because in a war with China, all that shit stops. Right. And it's going to be a massive problem for, for all Americans. And so we're just trying to become more, uh, more resilient in, in that regard. Uh, offer training to people, make sure we're sharing information around what's happening. And then if we do have some kind of catastrophic event, we can all hop up on our, our radio or our ham nets and share information about what's going on in the community and stop the things that we can stop and avoid the problems that we can't stop and hopefully save lives and come out on the back end of a really catastrophic emergency. If, if it were to happen, you know, come out uh, better for it. And uh, I don't know, maybe make some positive change, but I'll tell you kind of the, the benefit of having all these people in the community is that when it comes time or if it comes time to show up at the county courthouse to go protest and let our local leaders know that whatever they're trying to do is unsat or it's something that does not need to happen. And we have, we're not just relying on the tea party. We're not just replying on, you know, the big GOP to come in and, and, uh, and oppose this stuff. We've got real grassroots power here. We're building, right. the socialists call it dual power, right? They, you can't just pursue political power. You also have to build a social movement. And that is one thing that the socialists get right. And that is the thing that we're trying to build here is not just having, I mean, we're not for political power, but really what I want to do is build a social movement and exert social power to push things through that need to get pushed through and to stop things that need to be stopped. And, if we can do that on the local level, and if lots of other people can do that on a local level, then we can start taking back counties and, and states. And if we can't take back the whole state, let's take back part of the state. They can go their way. We'll go our way. And if you believe in the whole national divorce thing, that's probably how that's going to happen, if it happens. No, I lost you. Oh, are you there? Oh, you're back. Okay. Um, how did you get that started? Like, how did you, how did you go about starting that? Because, like, I'd love to do something like that in my local community here. Um, I would like to get back to, um, like, I guess maybe from the female side of things, um, people pulling out their sewing machines and, and sewing, you know, clothes and, and necessities and things like that. I'd like to, people start canning more, baking more, um, prepping, like actually, you know, housing food, like your expanded pantry that you talked about sounded really cool. Um, but women doing the things that we used to do in the past, but we have moved so far away from it's all about being that boss babe and not doing the things that we need to do your home like raising our kids. So I think I'd really like to know how you started that process and, and how you approach people and, and that kind of stuff. If you don't care to share that. Sure. Well, luckily I've got a friend who's connected to everybody. And so I, I had <laughs> kind of use a cheat code, yeah. uh, but you know, those people exist and you know, maybe that's you if you're watching or, you know, maybe that's you, Heather, I don't know. Uh, but you know, just, just start with one friend, go out and, and one friend and pitch this idea to them and say, look, there's so many benefits. If there's a sale over at uh, whatever store, I don't go by that store every day, but somebody in our network does, and they can jump in the signal group or they can jump in the Telegram chat or jump in the whatever, however you, you're contacting each other and say, oh, hey, by the way, all this stuff's 10% off or they got a whatever, 50% off. Everybody can come and, and get what you want to get. Or if there's a website that says, hey, our 
I don't know, big, big Berkey uh, water filters or 10% off or 15 or 20% off. Great. Drop that in the chat and let everyone take advantage of that who needs a, a big water filter. And if we can just say, look, hey, access to information is power. And the more people we have, the more access we have. Then I think you'll be able to get uh, a, a couple people involved. One thing that we have not started doing but will is taking out ad space on some radio stations that have kind of our target audience it was what you would call it. Uh, or take a small ad out in a newspaper. I'll tell you, a lot of these, we have a, a station here locally that will broadcast free any kind of community event for a nonprofit. And being that we're nonprofit, uh, you know, that I'm trying to reach those people. And so uh, you might start, you might think about starting a Facebook group or uh, go to your local pastor at a church and just say, hey, look, can we give a free 30 minute talk about emergency preparedness and see who comes up and approaches you later. And maybe there'll be five or 10 plus people that say, Hey, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, I'm interested in emergency preparedness. And uh, I really like this network that you're trying to build. How can I join? And then you go and do that at a handful of churches. And all of a sudden you go from like two to five people. Now you got 50 or hundred people in this thing. And now you're really cooking with the gas. Cause that's, that's a lot of people to do a lot of stuff with. Sure, and so, sure. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I'm, in what I watched and read and, and kind of, I guess, stopped you with, I, I think that that was one of the coolest things that you guys have done there. So I, I think if we could amplify that and have more people doing that across the country, we could affect some genuine change a lot faster than, than what it would take if we were just individually out here screaming into the ether. So I think that's pretty awesome. Um, I'm not going to keep you any longer because I know we're, we're touching on 19 of your time. You got family. Um, can you please share uh, your website, your Twitter, like all the places where people can find you, your YouTube? I'll link it in the description. But just for the people who are who are listening, um, give me uh, kind of your 10 second in commercial where people can can touch base with you. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for allowing me to talk about the stuff that I love. I've run a company called Forward Observer. So if you want a daily intel brief on what's happening in the world, and also every Friday we have a warning roundtable. So we talk about how to start preparing for the downstream effects. Okay, great. We get into a big war in Ukraine. What? How does that affect us? We talk about that kind of stuff. That website is forwardobserver.com. If you want training, on how to build a local intelligence network. I have We have classes. The Tactical Intelligence course is my main one. I teach that from coast to coast. That is at www.grayzoneactivity.com. That's my training company. And then we're also on YouTube under Forward Observer and Gray Zone Activity as well. Gray Zone tends to be kind of me personal stuff that I will say to you, but I wouldn't say necessarily to the Forward Observer platform. Uh, and so if you, if you want the real skinny on what I think, yeah, check out Gray Zone. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate you. Please take care, and we will be in touch soon. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good night. Right. You too. Yep. Bye.